Hello, and welcome to the third episode of the Dayson Digest. We are recording this on Friday, December 18th, and that is important to note because today's topic is one that is rapidly evolving. Over the past week, we have seen the arrival of the first vaccine in the United States, and by the time you're listening to this, there may actually be a second one approved uh, because the FDA committee is actually considering those second vaccine as we speak. What we wanted to do with this podcast in the theme of keeping our Dayson members up to date about vaccine issues and all things related to COVID is try to help dispel some of the myths out there about the vaccines and provide some updates on common questions that we are getting from our Dayson sites. So today with me, I have Schaefer Spires. Hi, Schaefer. Hey, Libby. How's it going? And it's going. Busy week, huh? It is a fantastic week. Exciting time. Super exciting. But I do know that bringing a drug so quickly to market, especially a vaccine, which can have some controversy around it, has left many of our Dayson member sites with lots of questions. So perhaps we could just go through a few of the most common? Yeah, absolutely. All right. I think the big money question, and certainly the one I'm getting from my family, has to do with the safety. So how can a vaccine that was developed, you know, just since February, have a safety track record that makes us feel confident we should be recommending this to our friends and families and colleagues? Well, this is a totally appropriate question to think about. You know, we all have the same questions and uh, we have the fortune, I think, of being scientists and infectious diseases and being surrounded by colleagues who are familiar with vaccinology and immunology. And so we, we have, uh, been up to our necks in this information and fortunately Pfizer and Moderna have been extremely transparent throughout this whole process and so we have a lot of data to search through and understand and know about the safety and efficacy of these vaccines. So first of all I think the the, the biggest question comes up with everybody because it happened so fast and the speed at which it happened is not a result of hurrying the clinical trials. So the clinical trials ran flawlessly and without any compromise of a clinical trial protocol. And, and these are uh, you know, very well tested throughout the test of time. And these protocols were allowed to run without political intervention, without the bureaucracy and, and the controversy of, of all the other politics floating around. And so be rest assured the trials themselves were uncompromised. And what happened, and I think most people understand here, is the vaccine manufacturers were essentially armed and, and with money and were able to start making these vaccines before they got licensed. And so that is typically not the case. What happens traditionally is you get all the safety phase one and two, three trials, and then, you know, FDA considers it and then, you know, gives the FDA approval, which takes forever. And then ACIP gives the approval. And then somebody licenses the vaccine and starts manufacturing it. That all takes, you know, three, five years after it's already been made. And so this is all happened in a very, you know, a very tight timeline because of the money that's been dumped in, and, and, is, and is inevitably there's going to be a lot of money that's wasted because some of these vaccines that have been already manufactured and sitting in a warehouse are not going to come to market uh, ultimately. And 
that is one reason why the speed is so fast. Another reason is the FDA put forth in their EUA uh, requirements for a vaccine that these trials are gonna need to show at least two months of safety data after the last dose of the vaccine. Traditionally, it's at least six, six months. And this reduction in time of safety data is based on the fact that the overwhelming majority of reactions to a vaccine occur about six, within about six weeks after the vaccination. And so the, the FDA and the committee, the VRBAC committee or the uh, vaccine uh, related products advisory committee felt comfortable shortening that, that duration to two months. And ultimately they also had access to actually some safety data longer than that. And, and what we saw in these two vaccines uh, or what we're seeing with the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine is the adverse events were very similar to both placebo and vaccine groups, except for those solicited adverse events or those events that occurred within seven days of the shot. Those events that occurred within seven days of the, the shot, uh, both the first and the second, were more in the shot than those in the placebo. So those reactions were headache, fatigue, uh, body aches, pain in the arm, uh, even fevers and chills and, and, and body aches. Most people that received the vaccine had some reaction to the, to the vaccine. And again, when I say reaction, these are the, the reactions most commonly were the headache, fatigue, body aches, and arm pain. Uh, and arm pain includes lymphadenopathy. Some people uh, did get fever and chills. And we know in the Pfizer vaccine trial and the people that were 55 and under, almost half of them ended up taking uh, a Tylenol or ibuprofen type medicine to treat this, these symptoms. And so while we know that the local reactogenicity and even some of the systemic reactions uh, occur within those first couple days of vaccines, they actually did not see any safety signal in serious adverse events or adverse reactions. The, and some of the things that did happen like death uh, or hospitalization, those numbers were very small and they were the same in both placebo and uh, vaccine groups. The other thing I wanted to bring up, uh, because we do have this short safety period that is very sufficient, it's also gonna be very important for governing regulatory agencies to follow this post-authorization safety monitoring. Thanks, Schaefer. You know, I know that since the vaccine campaigns have been started, we are hearing through media reports of some severe reactions that are occurring in the healthcare workers. Have you been following those? Yes, and you know, I, I probably know as much as as uh, you know anybody does from the news reports about them. But what I can tell, there's been a few anaphylaxis type reactions. These are immediate type reactions happen within 30 minutes or so of the vaccination. 
And unfortunately, anaphylaxis type reactions can occur from anything. You know, it doesn't have to be a synthetic uh, vaccination uh, injection. It could be peanut butter, it can be antibiotics, it can be, you know, this, pro this sugar in red meat. It can be, uh, you know, almost anything can cause anaphylaxis. And so the fact that we're seeing these occur is not uncommon or unexpected. Unfortunately, these are very treatable and the vaccine providers are prepared to deal with them as we've seen, especially the, the, uh, the lady in, in Alaska that got it and got anaphylaxis. She was treated very rapidly and was stayed in the hospital for a few hours and released the same day. Thanks, Schaefer. It's helpful to know, you know, and I think sometimes we forget that we do expect to see side effects. What should we do going forward to make sure that we get the best data? I think that's one of our very important roles as healthcare providers as we roll out these vaccine campaigns throughout the United States. Uh, what monitoring are you going to be participating in for ongoing adverse event surveillance? Maybe that's a great point. I think the trials were designed to detect events that technically occur more than one in 10,000. And so the post-authorization monitoring is going to be very necessary to detect very rare events. And uh, VAERS is the most common uh, monitoring system that we use, V-A-E-R-S. And this is a system that anybody can log into and drop a report in if you have a reaction that you think occurred as a result of the vaccination. Uh, this system is, is very accessible and therefore lots of reactions get entered and it doesn't necessarily imply association or causality but what this system is useful for is since it's so accessible it, it's actually very you can like the people monitoring it can detect sick safety signals rather quickly and, and decide whether or not they're uh, causal and, and deal with it quickly. Another system that is very uh, cool that we are going to be pushing with vaccine recipients, including myself, is the CDC developed the vSafe. And that is, you go on and register if you have a smartphone or a phone that can uh, log on to the internet, and you'll register, and basically they'll send you text messages checking in with you every day for the first week and then weekly for the several weeks afterwards. And then you can log in your symptoms uh, of the shot and, and they can actually uh, create reports for you and follow up for uh, to try to determine causality. So that these are two systems that are very important that we will all likely be participating in. Great. Now, I know that something that's been happening in the, the Dayson home offices over the past week is we've been getting questions from sites that have taken us sometimes hours to dig through all the material to find the exact answers. So maybe we could do a rapid fire round of what we've learned about key vaccine considerations to help everyone. Let's start okay. with preservatives. Schaefer, do these vaccines contain preservatives? No preservatives, just, just a few uh, relatively minor ingredients, lipids and a couple different lipids that create the little envelope that carries the mRNA into your cell. 
and that's that is importantly too it doesn't actually enter into your nucleus so it can't alter your dna awesome how about fertility issues do you have to worry about this um, especially we've gotten some questions from people about this in their children is will it cause future fertility issues yeah that I, i'm not i guess because it's a rna and rna sounds like dna and maybe that's why this comes up but this is this is a this thing it, i mean it deteriorates within hours uh of entering in your body so it, there's there's no way it can actually uh impact you know future germ cells or dna in the nucleus or uh, anything like that can you get covid from this vaccine there is no virus in this vaccine it is not a live virus vaccine they did not test it in immunocompromised patients in the trials but most of the experts actually don't have any hesitancy to give it to someone who is immunocompromised, other than they just may not re respond to it as well. Great. What about patients who have allergies uh, related to animal products, so such as people with alpha-gal syndrome? Yeah, th this, uh, and, and, and frankly, Libby, this is something that I think we could even uh, do a whole podcast on, because it's such a fascinating story. But the alpha-gal syndrome, it, it is a, it is a sugar within the, the cell membrane of beef cells. And so some people have anaphylaxis to uh, this, this little molecule. There is a part of the development of this vaccine that uses cow milk. Uh, and so while there's no actual bovine products in the vaccine, Moderna or, or, or Pfizer, submitted documents saying that there is a chance that you know one of these vaccines may have some remnant of the uh, bovine product in there and so it's something to think about but if you think about that process that they actually go through to make these vaccines from that point that that chance of getting a bovine product in your vaccine is just way less than one in a million uh, but it, it's certainly as being as transparent as they have been, they have they have to say so. So it's something to think about, and and I would bring it up with your clinician if you have an alpha gal allergy. One more rapid fire, Schaefer. Do these vaccines have latex? No latex. Great. I know those all those questions are very important, um, and hopefully we'll save our listeners some time. So Schaefer, something that I think we hear a lot, and maybe it's important for us to talk about some more, is so now that we have a vaccine, it's been a very exciting week. But when can we take our masks off? Are we ready? Is it time? Should schools reopen? Oh my gosh, man, I'm so ready to get these masks off. It is, uh, you know, it's it's almost contradictory to think about, like, okay, we've got a vaccine that's 95% effective what do you mean we can't take our mask off after I get the vaccine? And that this is a little bit of a nuance uh, with, you know, epi data, but it, so if you think about what has to happen for you to get COVID disease, you have to get exposed to it. It has to get into your mucous membrane somewhere, and then it has to start replicating and then it has to move into those areas of your body to cause disease. 
the vaccine has been shown now to prevent the vac the the COVID disease in the person exposed to COVID. What we don't know though is whether or not it prevents enough replication in your body such that you can't spread it to somebody else unwittingly. And so, you know, technically the, you know, your immune system works on something that is causing an infection in you. And so if, if the COVID vaccine stops replication of that virus so quickly such that you don't even shed the virus uh, then, then you are not going to spread it, even if you don't get the the disease. And the there is some early data that the Moderna vaccine has submitted suggests that this COVID vaccine prevents asymptomatic infection in the vaccine group following the first dose, and that that was reduced by about fifty to sixty percent. That has not been fully analyzed, and we don't know if that's a significant number yet, but that will, that will be something that both vaccine manufacturers will be following from here on out. Uh, I think Moderna is actually the most capable of, of looking at those numbers because of the way they did the trial. Okay, Schaefer, a big pressing question we've also gotten from sites. I've gotten it from a few family members, so I got to an early preview of some exciting family news. But should you get this vaccine if you're pregnant? So there is recommendation to not withhold the vaccine if somebody's pregnant. Or I would say they, they say consider not withholding the vaccine from pregnant individuals. Pregnancy was an exclusion criteria for these vaccine trials. However, they do know that several people got pregnant during the trial while they were participating in the trial. And they are following these people to see if there's any outcomes in pregnancy. What we do know is that there is really no way that the vaccine products could enter into the uterus or womb or baby and directly affect the baby inside the mother. And so around here, at least, don't think there's any reason not to give a, a, a pregnant woman this vaccine. And actually, one of our colleagues in the division, his wife, who is in third term pregnancy right now, just received the vaccine this past Tuesday. And so maybe that should be as good of an endorsement as any. Thank you, Schaefer. That's great. Well, everyone, thanks for listening in to our third installment of the Dayson Digest. We hope you found it helpful. Uh, please send us any ideas you have for future podcasts or things you'd like to learn about. Uh, with the advent of these vaccines, we are very excited to start getting back into traditional stewardship topics, so nothing's off the table. Thank you, Schaefer, for taking some time to share all the answers you've been finding through our excessive reading this week. Um, and we hope you all have a great weekend. Exciting times. Thanks, Libby. Good to talk with you. 